Good morning, and thank you for the very gracious welcome. We're thrilled to have the privilege of sharing in worship with you this morning. I'm happy to introduce my colleague, Peter Graeber, who is the uh, Director for Development at Mission Network. Uh, he and his wife, Mary, live in Elkhart, Indiana, and uh, they attend the Sunnyside Mennonite Church in in Dunlap. Thank you. Just have a few greetings to make and sort of on the announcement frame of things, uh, wanted to first of all greet Bob and Nancy Martin who are my frequent hosts here and they've hosted both Stanley and I this time and their hospitality is uh, legendary admission network. Uh, I was remarking this morning that most of you probably don't get to stay at their home but perhaps you need to move away so that you can come back and stay at their home. It's a great treat. And I see I've also missed uh, my timing is bad again because uh, we are leaving uh, this afternoon for uh, some commitments in Ohio. And on December 3rd, there's Friends and Flapjacks. And that sounds like something I'd want to come to. But I represent, uh, as Stanley does, Midnight Mission Network. And our role in the church is to lead, motivate, and equip the church for mission. Uh, and mission, in our sense, means that we are interested in building indigenous communities of faith around the world, and that includes uh, this country where we try to make our faith indigenous whenever possible. Uh, we do things from Christian service, voluntary service, to all kinds of international mission, as well as resourcing congregations for mission. You folks are familiar with our work in a number of ways. You support Mark and Mary Hurst, uh, who were here, I think, just a couple weeks ago, right? And so you know much more about their ministry now than I do, I'm sure. Uh, and you also know that uh, our ministries need your support uh, of all kinds, emotional, prayer, and financial. We thank you very much for the contributions you make to Mission Network each year on the order of $20,000 or more, which is a significant uh, help to what we do around the world. And I know that many of you also participate in Mission Network or have participated in, in other ways, and I'd just like to get a feel for that here today. Um, are there anybody else, has there anybody else besides, well, Bob and Nancy, I know, you can raise your hands. Anybody else that's been a worker uh, internationally with Mennonite Mission Network or Mennonite Board of Missions or Commission on Overseas Mission? Anybody else? Okay, there we go. We got all of our friends here. They sit up in this section, so that's the <laughs> Mission Network section here. Uh, how about voluntary service? How many participated in Mennonite voluntary service, either just a few years ago or 50 years ago? Or how, many, how many did voluntary service? Okay. All right, some more of you there. Uh, we appreciate that. I know that there's some people in the congregation that have done soup, which is kind of voluntary service for shorter terms for people that are not young adults anymore. How many people have done soup? Okay. So we have all this uh, relationship here, and there are probably other categories that I've missed of people that have served in our offices or uh, done some itinerating for us or various kinds of things. So we appreciate all that kind of relationship with East Chestnut, uh, and we're grateful for that. I just want to make a small note in the bulletin here. I see that next week external giving is to Mennonite Mission Network, so that's an important Sunday for you here. We... <laughs> I know that you look forward to that. Today it's for Mennonite Central Committee, our friends and colleagues at Mennonite Central Committee, and I hope you support them well, but save a little bit for next week. <laughs> Thanks.
Thank you, Peter. <clears throat> I will just add my thanks. Uh, we do sincerely appreciate uh, your prayers and friendship as we uh, seek to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ all around the world. Todd gave a little bit of an introduction to my and Ursula's journey, but uh, that journey for me in ministry began at the Federal Theological Seminary of Southern Africa. Uh, there, at a fairly young age, I, having responded to God's call, uh, prepared for ministry. At the at FedSem, as we called it, we had about 5,000 theological texts, which were the foundation of my preparation for ministry. And after pastoring for a number of years in southern Africa, uh, my wife Ursula and I were invited to go as mission workers to Jamaica. En route to Jamaica, we spent a year in uh, Birmingham, England at the Sally Oak Colleges. And while at the Sally Oak Colleges, we had access to about 60,000 theological texts, including the Harold Turner Library. And then we went to Jamaica, and after completing our five-year term, I personally felt the need for better equipping for mission. And so we went then to Fuller Theological Seminary. And at Fuller Seminary, on five different levels, we had access to 600,000 theological texts. Don't worry, I didn't count them. That's the number that they publish as uh, the resource that's available to students who come. But whether it's 6,000 or 60,000 or even yet 600,000, it's easy to see how somebody might say, if it takes 6,000 or 60,000 or 600,000 texts to explain what it means to follow Jesus, who can ever hope to get it right? And then we meet Jesus. And Jesus cuts to the very heart of the matter. And Jesus says there are really only two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, Jesus says in Luke's rendering, and you will truly live. These two injunctions of the text really are the two basic movements of our Christian life. And the first one renders us objects. Because in 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse 10, the writer of the epistle says, herein is love. This is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that God first loved us and gave his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is appealing to an Old Testament text that is very familiar to his audience. Uh, Back in uh, Deuteronomy 6, the text known as the Shema uh, is familiar to every Jewish uh, person. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one God. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And we know that uh, when you read this text, there may be here perhaps thousands of stories. But there is really only one single saga woven throughout the text. It's the story of a God who so loves you and who so loves me that he is willing to go to extreme ends to restore us in relationship with himself. When we meet Jesus, Jesus repeats this theme almost ad infinitum. He is telling the story about a woman who loses a coin and who searches incessantly and will not rest, sweeping every inch of the house in order that that coin might be found. Or he tells the story of a shepherd who is gathering the sheep to the fold for the evening rest. And when he arrives at the fold, he discovers that one of these sheep is not among those who have entered the fold. And Jesus says, and the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine and goes searching over hill and vale, searching until he finds this sheep that was lost. Now, if you were like me and you grew up in a Christian home, it is quite likely that you have an image, a picture of Jesus standing erect, and on his shoulders is a gentle, cuddly lamb. You couldn't have wanted a sweeter little lamb. But Desmond Tutu says that is completely, absolutely wrong. What Jesus finds is an obstreperous ram that is stinking to high heaven. It was caught in the thicket and rebellious, and it is this ram, rebellious and stinking, that Jesus picks up and puts on his shoulders and carries home. And Jesus says, that's kind of like you and I, not Jesus, you and I were. And in the love of God, he picks us up and he puts us on his shoulders and he carries us home. 
there is one more story that to me is one of the most compelling stories in the entire text where Jesus tells the story of a father who had two sons. And there came a day when the younger of the two sons said, I'm just sick and tired of the constraints and the confines of this household. And he says to his father, Father, I count you as dead. Please, give me what I would have inherited, and I will go and make my own life. And the father, gracious father that he is, liquidates the assets and gives the son what would have been due in his inheritance. And the son goes, and he makes his own life, only it's a life that led to great deprivation and struggle and suffering and pain. He finds himself struggling, fighting pigs for food. And when he comes to that place of discovery, he says to himself, I will go home and I will shame, humiliate myself before my father. And I will say, Father, I'm not really worthy to be your son anymore. Please, just so that I might survive, make me as one of your servants. Meanwhile, the father has been hearing the voices of his neighbors who have told him, this son of yours has done such a shameful, scandalous thing, you should write him off. You should count him as dead. And if for some reason he ever comes home again, you should chastise him, punish him so that He understands what a uh, scandalous, humiliating thing he has done to this family. But the father, at the end of each workday, sits on the veranda. And he looks out to the horizon, longing, hoping for the day that his son will come home. And one day he notices in the shimmering sunlight a figure coming over the horizon. And he knows as only a father can, that is my son. And disregarding the voices of the neighbors, he gets up and gathers his robe and runs as fast as his feet can carry him. And he falls on the shoulder of his son and weeps tears of great joy and rejoicing for his son is coming home. And he picks him up and he carries him across the threshold. And when he gets home, he says to the servants, find a ring and put it on his finger. He is being restored to a privileged place in the family. Put a robe on his shoulders. Put sandals on his feet. And besides, find a fatted calf, the best that we have and slaughter it, and let's make the greatest celebration this village has ever seen, for this my son was lost. Now he has come home. And throughout the text, Jesus is helping us to see a God who so loves us, who so desires to be restored in relationship with us,
who so wants to draw us into fellowship with himself that he is willing to go to extreme ends to restore us. And we know that we are loved by God. There do indeed come those seasons in all of our lives where for a time we may question that love. We get a terminal diagnosis, we lose a spouse, we feel betrayed, we lose our job, and for a season we may question whether God really loves us. But we know the longer testament of our lives, the longer history of our encounter with God, that he has been there for us that he has been walking with us, indeed sometimes even curing us through the difficult seasons. And if God loves us, God's desire for us is that we simply create the space. We quiet ourselves long enough to revel in the, the love and the and the grace and the compassion of God for each of us. For most of us, we're so busy, driven to create our own story, to make a success of our lives in the way that the world perceives that. We're so uh, frantic that we lose sight of the fact that God loves us, and his greatest desire is to pour out his blessings in our lives. And we miss the opportunity of just delighting in the blessings of God. We are in the season of thanksgiving. In these next few days, it is my hope that I can and that each of us will quiet ourselves long enough to remember the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love of God that God has shown us. And that may fill our lives with joy and with delight in what God has done for us. And if we learned in Sunday school probably the first chorus that you learn, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's another chorus that we quickly learn after that, and it says, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red, brown, black, yellow, white, all are precious in his sight. You know I'm not a singer, right? (laughs) But the point is that when we learn to love God, we are also called to love those whom God loves. And that's the second movement of our Christian walk. If the first renders us objects, the second renders us subjects. And it is my suspicion that while many of us 
can grasp and come to terms with the fact that, that God loves us, we see the uh, external evidences of that, of that love of God, both in the text but in the images that uh, are stuck in our minds and that we see everywhere, the image of the cross. But we struggle with understanding that God wants to use us as those who bridge that love into the lives of others, that God calls us to be the instruments, the agents of of God's healing and hope, of God's mercy and grace in the lives of others. When When we understand the call of God to Abraham, we understand why that is so critical. When God calls Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, Abraham, if you will walk with me, I will bless you. But God goes on to say this, and I will make you a blessing. In you, all the families of the nations will be blessed. And when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he says to those who hear the good news of Jesus, and you, he says, are the seed of Abraham by faith, the church, the newly emergent church. It is through the church, through you and I, that God is fulfilling the promise of Abraham. Through us, God's intent is to bring blessing and healing and hope to a hurting world. And so we are called not only to delight and to uh, receive the blessings of God, we are called to bridge that love into the lives of others. And that's where, whether it's our Mennonite modesty or our simple insecurity, we have difficulty understanding that I... You are the ones that God is wanting to use, that he has peculiarly gifted us, that he has blessed us in such a way that we are intended to bring blessing into the lives of others. And I heard a story some time ago that helped me to understand uh, this notion of being the subjects uh, the subjects of God's love in the world. The story is told of a a wealthy man who had everything that he could ever wish for. Houses and land and property and orchards and animals. He had everything that he could ever wish for. But as he was coming toward the end of his life, he began to be a little troubled he began to ask the question, is what I have simply by dint of sheer hard work and shrewd negotiation, or has God been with me? Is this all the blessing of God, or is it just my hard work? And he wanted desperately to know that God had been with him. And so he went to the rabbi, and he said, "Uh, Rabbi, 
I understand that there is a legend that Elijah, who was not buried but raptured into heaven, roams the earth and goes at God's bidding to bring blessing into the lives of those to whom God directs him. Rabbi, how might I meet Elijah so that I may know that I too am blessed of God? And the rabbi said, I don't know. And he went away a little disappointed, but through the whole of the rest next week, he was anxious and troubled. He really wanted to meet Elijah so that he could know he was blessed of God. So second week, he came back to the rabbi and he said, Rabbi, you must tell me. How might I meet Elijah? And the rabbi said, I told you, I don't know. And he went away crestfallen. But it still bothered him this whole next week. So he said, I'll go back to the rabbi one final time. And he went to the rabbi and he said, Rabbi, you must tell me. How can I meet Elijah? The rabbi said, okay, I will tell you. This coming week, you must pack your wagon full of the best fruit and vegetables and food and drink. And as the Sabbath proceeded, the wealthy man was looking at the father and wondering, could this be Elijah? But he noticed that the father picked his teeth and he burped loudly and he spoke vulgarly. And he said to himself, I shouldn't go by surface impressions. I know a way to discover if he is Elijah. So he took the Torah and he said to me, he said to him, Sir, can you teach me the Torah? And the father said, I'm illiterate. I'm sorry, I, I can't read the Torah. So the wealthy man let that sink in, and as it sunk in, he grew more distressed and and distraught. The rabbi had deceived him. The rabbi had led him astray. And so he began to be angry and waited out the Sabbath. And when the end of the Sabbath came, he greeted the family and left in a huff. But as he walked out of the hut, his boot got stuck in the mud. And when he bent down to pick up his boot, he was looking through the window. And he saw the two little children just dancing with great joy over this most wonderful Sabbath they had experienced. And then he saw the wife leaning in to the husband, and he heard the question the wife asked the husband. She said, husband, who is this who came to visit us this Sabbath? And the husband said, why don't you see that was Elijah? come to bring blessing into our lives, sent by God. Too often we seek the blessing of God for our lives. Too seldom do we understand that those blessings are given not simply for our indulgence, but so that we can bridge those blessings into the lives of others. You are an Elijah. I am an Elijah. Your hands are the only hands that God has to extend compassion and care into the lives of those who are hurting and struggling.
your arms are the only arms through which someone may experience the embrace of the love of God. Your mouth is the only mouth through whom someone will hear the words of hope and encouragement and healing that God wishes to insert into their lives. You are an Elijah. God intends to use you as a source of blessing and healing and hope. One final story. I met a woman once who helped me to understand what it means to be an Elijah. Unfortunately, I met her in death, not in this life. I was summoned to go to her funeral. When I went to the funeral, I was expecting there'd be 200 people, but the sanctuary was filled with over 600 people. And as we walked into the sanctuary, we were given a bulletin. Inside the bulletin was a bookmark. And on the bookmark, a picture of this beautiful young woman. Below her picture was a hand-drawn sketch, obviously made by an elementary child of the world. And under the world, the sketch, were these words, the world is my community. Somewhere back when she was eight or nine, she heard a Sunday school teacher use these words, the world is my community. And she understood that to mean that God was calling her not just to her family, not just to the extended family or even the people in her church, but that God was calling her to embrace the whole world with the love of God. And so she made this little sketch on a piece of newsprint and hung it on her bedroom door and saw this picture all through her growing up. And then when she went to Heston College, she took that same uh, picture and put it on her dorm room door. And then when she came to Alamosa, Colorado, to the voluntary service unit that we have there, she worked in a program called La Puente. At La Puente, her responsibility was to relate to uh, children of migrant workers. Many of these children came from very difficult circumstances. They knew little of the uh, uh, opportunity that parents generally have at the end of a day to extend love and uh, nurture because their parents worked till late night and had didn't have much opportunity. So Chloe hung this picture on her bedroom door in the unit and she determined that she was going to pour love into the lives of these children. So every day she met the children as they came And she hugged them and told them that she loved them and that God loved them too. And I understood the impact that Chloe's life had. When the service ended and we went to the fellowship hall, we walked through the the hallway and on the, the walls were tableaus with little imprints of the hands of little children who 
wrote to express the gratitude that they had for what Chloe had invested in their lives. They too, like all of us, were shocked that at 21, this young woman, one Sunday after church, was riding her bike, and a 16-year-old driving a truck drove straight into and killed her instantly. And so they were shocked and deeply grieved. But they expressed their love and gratitude for what she had invested in, into their lives. And I understood how, though brief her life, the impact that she had, I knew that maybe 10 years after that day, one of these children will be becoming a young adult and making a decision about the trajectory of their lives. And they will remember that one day they looked into the face of a young woman and saw the eyes of Jesus, experienced in her embrace the love of God, and will want to make a difference for blessing, for healing, and hope in the lives of others also. All around the world, through many Mennonite organizations, including Mission Network, people are seeking to make a difference for healing and hope are seeking to bridge the love of God into the lives of others. And I want to thank you for your partnership in making that possible, for your sharing. And I want to invite you this coming week, as we celebrate all of the blessing that God has poured out into our lives, to reach out to a colleague, a neighbor, somebody with whom you conduct commerce or whom you exercise with, and share with them the embrace of God's love so that they too may know that they are the beloved of God. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, he says and you will truly live.